as we go to open God's Word together, let's ask Him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, is the living Word. To whom else can we go? For He alone has the words of eternal life. And as we listen to His Word, may Christ's Spirit write its message on our hearts and feed our souls with its nourishing truth. In this time, Father, speak to us of eternal things, so that hearing the promises of Scripture, we may hope and be lifted above all darkness and distress of this life into the light and peace of your presence, through Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's Word to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 9. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're glad to have you here today. We've been considering a series in the morning service through the book of Mark, and we've come to Mark chapter 9, verse 30. Uh, You can find that on page 1075 of many of our pew Bibles. Um, Mark is the second book of the New Testament between Matthew and Luke. So Mark chapter 9, beginning our reading at verse 30 and reading through verse 37, and that will be our text for this morning. Mark chapter 9, beginning our reading at verse 30, and let's pay careful attention for this is God's own word. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he is killed, after three days, he will arise. But they did not understand the saying. And were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him into his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Um, This is a, a passage that once again holds forth to us the two great purposes in this section of the Gospel of Mark. As we've been going through this section, we've, we've, I've said a number of times to you uh, that the principal object that Mark has in mind in this section is to teach us two things. Uh, to teach us what it's required for Jesus as the Messiah to do as Messiah. He's teaching his disciples those things, what it requires for him to be Messiah. And the second thing he's teaching them is what it requires for them to be identified with him. So this, is, this section is really all about, over and over again, who Jesus is as Messiah and what is required of disciples if they want to follow him. Um, and we really see both purposes being carried forward in this text. We have both elements here, what it requires for, to, for Jesus to be the Messiah. He gives here the second prophecy regarding his passion, his suffering and death. And resurrection here, Uh, that's really in verses 30 through 32, what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah who will die and rise again. And then we have what it means to be his disciples, what's required of them as Jesus teaches where true greatness is really found in his kingdom in response to this discussion they'd had amongst themselves about who is the greatest in the kingdom. And so Jesus in this passage is really teaching us first about his divine mission, 
That's the first thing we see here. Secondly, about his kingdom distinctions, how distinction and rank are really achieved in the kingdom of God, so his kingdom distinctions. And then finally, he gives his disciples his servant commission, how they are to behave as his disciples. And of course, that's not just for these 12 disciples, it's also for all of us who desire to be disciples of Christ. So his divine mission, his kingdom distinctions, and his servant commission is how we want to think about this passage together. Uh, This section, as I said, contains the second time the Lord has directly spoken to his disciples, plainly spoken to them about his suffering and death, Uh, how he will die, how after he has died, after three days he will rise from the dead. And he makes this prophecy, we're told, as they are passing through Galilee on their way to Capernaum. Uh, Mark tells us that this announcement to his disciples was not part of his public ministry. That's what it means that Jesus is passing through this region and doesn't want people to know he's there. Um, remember, he's, he's achieved quite a bit of notoriety in Galilee as a speaker, as a preacher, as a healer. Um, and it would only be natural if people knew he was there, they would flock around him as they have before in Galilee. And Jesus doesn't want that to happen because he wants this to be a time of private teaching to his disciples. He's going along not wanting other people to know he's in the region because he wants to say things to them, things that they need to hear, things that they need to understand. And it's in this context of private ministry to these 12 disciples that Jesus says to them what he says in verse 31. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will arise. Uh, This is the second time Jesus has spoken to them plainly about his death and resurrection. The first time was back in chapter 8, verse 31. Um, And part of this prophecy is telling them things that he has already told them. Uh, He already told them that he would be violently killed. Uh, He already said that in chapter 8, verse 31. He also already told them that after three days he would rise again from the dead. Uh, He told them that in chapter 8, verse 31. Earlier in chapter 9, he's made other references to his resurrection that caused them, you might remember, after the Mount of Transfiguration, to say, what does he mean by rising from the dead? So he's talked with the disciples about all of these things before. That's nothing new to them. It's the second time they've heard these things. But there is something new in this statement, something new that Jesus has not said to them before. And it's this new element that Mark really highlights for us in the way Jesus spoke this word to his disciples. What is the new element in this statement that they had not heard before? It's that section, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. He's going to be handed over into the hands of men. That's not something that he said to the disciples before. And that's something that's really highlighted for us by how Jesus says that to his disciples. Um, The grammar is what indicates what he's doing. Now, if you want people to have their eyes roll back into their heads and to stop following you, start talking about grammar in a sermon. Um, There's not going to be a test on this, and if you're having flashbacks to English grammar in high school, uh, don't worry. The grammar portion of the sermon will be over relatively quickly. But the grammar is important here because Jesus is talking about events that are happening in the future. And the normal way we talk about events that happen in the future is to use the future tense. And that's what Jesus does when he says, 
the Son of Man is going to be delivered over and they will kill him. That's in the future tense. And after three days, he will rise. That's in the future tense. But when he says he is going to be delivered over, he actually uses the present tense. And why does he use the present tense when he's speaking about the future? It's to really highlight that for them. Um, That's why if you read the King James Version, for example, they have this translated as the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men. You hear that, that present reality being expressed or the Christian Standard Bible says he is being delivered. It's trying to bring out that, that present force. And when someone uses a present tense to speak about a future event, what it does is it startles the hearer because it doesn't sound right. It sounds like something that ought to happen in the future. And so this is particularly being highlighted for us to draw our attention to this statement in particular. The disciples would have found that a startling thing because it would make that vivid for them and it would express something of the certainty of that event. He is certainly going to be delivered over into the hands of men. That's the new element that's really being stressed here. You can relax, the grammar portion is over. But I want, us, I want us to see how this is being highlighted for us. It would have been vivid to the disciples. It would have been startling and it would have arrested their attention that Jesus would say it this way. Almost as if it's happening right now. This future event of him being delivered over. He speaks of this event in such a vivid way to them to make sure it catches their attention. And we want it to catch our attention, that the Son of Man will be delivered over, handed over into the hands of men. Now, why does Jesus want this to be so vividly presented to his disciples? Why does he want them to be startled and arrested by this statement? So that they understand what is going to happen to him and understand why it's happening to him. When Jesus is killed... When Jesus is taken by men, his disciples need to understand that he has been delivered over by his Father. That this is the will of God for him to suffer like this, to die, and after three days to rise. Because not only would the way Jesus said this have been arresting to them, they would have understood this language as the language of martyrdom. To be delivered over, to be handed over, to come under someone's power is the language of martyrdom. We see an example of these words being used this way in Jeremiah 26, 24. But the hand of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, was with Jeremiah so that he was not given over to the people to be put to death. Um, This is martyr language, and to be handed over and delivered over as martyr language was a reminder that it's the will of God that stands behind everything. That if people are delivered over to death for the Lord's sake, he is the one that delivers them over. God is sovereign even in that. Um, That it's the will of God that's at work in that. And that's what Jesus wants his disciples to understand about his suffering and his death and his resurrection, that it's the hand of God at work in this. That this is not happening because of wicked men. 
This is not happening because Judas Iscariot turns him over or because the Roman authorities turn him over or because the Jewish authorities are against him. None of that is the reason this happens. This is all the redemptive will of God for the Lord to suffer and die in this way and to rise again for the salvation of his people. Jesus is emphasizing for them exactly what the point was of the prophet Isaiah when he spoke about the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. He said in verse 6, it's the Lord who's laid on him the iniquities of us all. Or in verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. It was the will of Yahweh to crush him. It's Yahweh who puts him to grief. This is God's redemptive plan. It's the truth that Peter understands under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and proclaims on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This all happens according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus wants them to understand what is going to happen is God's redemptive will that God, through this act, is redeeming his people. This is the plan of God for our salvation. Why does God hand over his son to men in this way? So that through his death and resurrection, we might be saved. Prophet Isaiah told us that as well. Isaiah 53, 4 and 5, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. They need to understand that God is doing this. Nothing that happens to Jesus is happening outside of God's redemptive will. And God is allowing this and God is ordaining this to happen for a particular reason. And that reason is the salvation of his people. God is delivering over his son because without his death, there is no atonement for our sins. And without his resurrection, there is no victory over our curse. He has to die for our sins. He has to be raised for our justification because he came to save our souls. And the beautiful thing that Jesus is teaching his disciples here is when these things take place, know that it's my Father who's delivering me up. Know it's the will of God for your salvation that's taking place here. This does not happen apart from the will of God as if the Son of Man is being subjected to wicked men. But this is sovereignly ordained by God. Because without my death, Jesus is saying to them, there is no salvation for your soul. And without my resurrection, there is no justification for you. I'm being delivered up to save you. And that's why the Father has sent me to save you. We're learning something wonderful here, both about the Father who sent our Lord and the Lord who is willing to come and be delivered up to violent death for our sakes so that he might save our souls and redeem us from the curse of the law. 
And so how do the disciples react to this new element? They don't understand it. Right? They don't understand it, and we're told they're afraid to ask more about it. Um, They didn't understand what he said, and they were afraid to ask him, verse 32 tells us. And I think by understanding that part that Jesus is really highlighting, I think we understand where their fear really stems from. They'd heard about death and resurrection before. That had raised questions in their mind early in chapter 9. I think the thing that scares them is to think of the Son of Man being handed over. I think they're afraid to know more about that. Because I think still in their minds, they cannot separate the Son of Man's coming and the resurrection of the dead from the glory of His kingdom. And so they don't want to ask about this delivering over Instead, they just discuss the glory. And so they start talking about when that glorious kingdom comes, which one of us do you think will be greatest in his kingdom? Let's not think about this delivering over business. Let's think about the glory. And while we're on that subject, which of us do you think will be the greatest in that kingdom? Um, I, I think we should see that connection because every single gospel writer, all the synoptic gospels, talk about these events in the same sequence. In Mark, in Matthew, and in Luke, we read about the disciples hearing this prophecy of his suffering and death, and then immediately discussing which of them is the greatest. It's the same sequence in every gospel. This is always following his prophecy about his passion, followed by their discussion of who's the greatest. It kind of is a silly argument to have, right? Um, To talk about... The kingdom distinctions. Which one of us is going to really have rank and priority? I hope none of them were saying that of themselves. I know the disciples have said some dumb things in the Gospels, but I like to believe that even they were not going around saying, you know what, I think I'll be the greatest. Um, I hope they were discussing about who else might be the greatest, but you never know. Uh, But it's these kinds of kingdom distinctions that they're talking about along the way. So when they get through Galilee... We can imagine Jesus walking ahead of them and them behind having this conversation. And when they get into the home in Galilee, in Capernaum, uh, Jesus says, now what were you all talking about on the way? Have you ever been having a dumb conversation and someone asks you, what what are you guys talking about? And it's embarrassing to tell them. Um, That's kind of what's happening here. Jesus says to his disciples, what were you discussing on the way? And they all kind of remain, they all remain silent. And you can think, why? We were having a really dumb conversation. I'm not about to tell Jesus. We were talking about who's going to be the greatest one in his kingdom. But boys and girls, we know that Jesus already knows everything, doesn't he? We know that Jesus isn't asking this question because he doesn't know. He's asking this question because he wants to teach them the truth about distinctions in his kingdom. He's going to speak into their ashamed silence. Um, And before we're too critical of the disciples, we we know ourselves all too well that we too get sidetracked by dumb questions. I learned one pastor in his sermon said, his servants still do and say many things on the road which they would not do if they saw Jesus close beside them. And they sometimes imagine that these escape his notice. We still do that, don't we? Say dumb things that if Jesus were suddenly to walk up and say, what are you saying? He would say, oh, I really don't want to tell you. I know I shouldn't be saying it. 
But what does Jesus do with this discussion of kingdom distinction? Well, first, he, he so helpfully reminds them who is the greatest in the kingdom. Notice how he begins to teach his disciples in verse 35. Um, and he sat down and he called the twelve and said to them. Now, Mark is not a big details guy, right? Of all the gospels, he is the most economic in his use of words. So why would Mark take the trouble to say Jesus sat down and called the twelve to him? Because sitting is a position of authority. When you sat, you were taking up a position of authority. We sometimes read the Bible about those who sit in the city gates. It doesn't mean they're sitting in the city gates doing nothing. They're sitting as authorities in the city gates. People come to them. It's, it's thought of as a, as a position of authority. We can think of a king or queen sitting on a throne. They sit, other people stand. Why? Because they are the authorities. And it was the same when it came to teachers, Teachers would come and they would sit down, and they would sit in their position of authority as teachers, and then they would begin to teach. So it's wonderful that before they're, after this discussion of which one of us do you think is the greatest, Jesus sits down and calls them and reminds them who's the greatest, reminds them that they are all servants of his, that he is the superior to all of them, that he is their teacher, that he is their master that he really is their king. And so if you want to know who's the greatest in the kingdom, it's the king who will tell you. The king decides who's greatest in his kingdom, right? That's, that's first day kingdom stuff, right? The king decides who's greatest in his kingdom. And so what he's going to do is tell his disciples, if you want to understand the distinctions in my kingdom, where rank and privilege come from, I'll tell you. Where is true greatness found in my kingdom? Who do I consider the greatest in the kingdom of God? Who is the greatest? Well, he tells them in verse 35, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. What makes for rank and distinction in the kingdom of God? It's humility and service. That's what makes one great in the kingdom of God. Jesus is being so helpful to his disciples here to understand what kind of mindset they have to have towards one another and what kind of ministry they have to exercise towards one another. There are things Jesus will tell them about how to relate to those outside of the kingdom. Now he's talking about inside the kingdom. How do people inside the kingdom relate, relate to each other? They have to have the proper mindset, he says, and they have to exercise the proper ministry if they want to be great in the kingdom. What is the kingdom mindset that Jesus is calling his disciples to? You have to be last of all. That's the humility that he is calling them to, a mindset of humility that says, I am the last of all, which means everyone else in the kingdom is ahead of me. I am last of all. And I'm going to put everyone else ahead of me. That's the mindset of the kingdom because that's the mindset of the king. That's why we read the law from Philippians chapter 2. Because it reminds us that we are to have that same mind that is in Christ Jesus 
The mindset of the kingdom, that mindset of humility, was the mindset of the king. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Equality with God, there's nothing higher than that. But he emptied himself and he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see how that mindset of humility led to his ministry. And Paul uses that same dynamic in Philippians 2 to say, work on that kingdom mindset. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves because that will lead to kingdom ministry. Just as the mind of the king led to the ministry of the king, so the mindset of humility in his servants will lead to ministry to one another. Last of all is the mindset. Servant of all is the ministry. To be willing to serve everyone before us because we count them more significant than ourselves. I don't think it's a coincidence that Paul says in Philippians 2.3, in humility count others better than yourselves, which leads to the ministry he talks about in verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Isn't that how our Lord showed the way. He humbled himself to serve. That's why he's the greatest in the kingdom of God. Because he humbled himself below every single one of us to live for us, to suffer for us, to die for us, to be buried for us. The Lord of glory He became last of all because the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If that's our king, that's what he wants in his kingdom. That's where greatness is found in that kingdom mindset of humility and that kingdom ministry of service. To be greatest is to be last. And to be a servant of all. This is so important because this is not how greatness is measured in our world. I think part of the problem the disciples were still having is they were making the mistake that Peter had made back in chapter 8. Looking at things through the eyes of men, not through the eyes of God. Right? That was Peter's problem. Peter, you are thinking of the things of men, not about the things of God. And I still think that was their earthly perspective on the kingdom. Glory and who gets the biggest rank, who gets the biggest position. And Jesus is saying, you need to truly understand how the kingdom of heaven measures greatness. It's not the way the world measures greatness. And the world will tell you this is a recipe for being stepped on in the world. Making yourself last of all and seeking to serve all. There are plenty in the world who say this is a sucker's bet. This is, this is what a beta personality would do. And you're just going to be run over in the world if you're like this. And the question that comes to God's people is, do you want to be great here or do you want to be great there? Do you want the king of glory to think of you as great or do you want this corrupt and crooked generation to think of you as great? Because greatness in the kingdom of God is measured by humility and measured by service. 
And of course, we all ought to seek to be great, not in the eyes of this world, but in the eyes of the only one who really matters, who is the Lord of heaven. And it's from this teaching about where true kingdom distinction is found that the Lord teaches his disciples and gives them their servant commission. The servant commission from our Lord is given at the end of this passage. And he illustrates what he's talking about first through this wonderful little tender scene with a child in the house. Um, Jesus takes a child and sets him in the midst of the disciples. Um, They're in a home, we're told. They're in a home in Capernaum. And we can imagine it's like any other home. It has a lot of different people in it. The disciples are, are hearing this teaching and Jesus is teaching them, but probably running around are the children of the household. And maybe this is the littlest, we don't know, but maybe this is the littlest child in the household, the youngest one. And Jesus takes that little child and he puts him in the midst of the disciples and then he embraces the child. It's a wonderful picture, isn't it? Of the Lord of glory embracing this little child. It reminds us for all of his august majesty, he still has this wonderful affection. Jesus does love the little children. And he embraces this child in love. And what a picture is, what a contrast is set forward there between the affection of our Lord and the ambition of the disciples. And Jesus is telling them, think about this little child. Because this little child doesn't know anything about wanting to be first in the kingdom. That's not what this child is thinking about. Um, Now, maybe some of you are thinking, I know children that think they ought to be first. Um, I remember my mom likes to tell the story when my sister was three years old, she came down and said, I don't think it's fair that the adults always get to be in charge. I think the kids should be in charge some days. My mom said, I called your father and said, we have a little three-year-old here who wants to be in charge. You better come home and support me in this. Um, We know that there are children who sometimes want to be in charge. Uh, But what Jesus' point is here is, this child doesn't know what it is to be great in the kingdom. This child is not worried about what, what her position or his position will be in the kingdom of God. There's no ambition in this child. And Jesus embraces the child and says to his disciples, if you really want to understand how this kingdom works, if you really want to be my servants, then this is how that kingdom mindset of humility manifests itself in considering ourselves the least of all and becoming like this child. Not having that ambition that you guys are speaking about. Being like a child, one person said, lowly, unambitious, unexacting. Like a child that has no pretense for greatness, another person said. John Calvin says, we only have a wonderful picture of humility in this. This is not someone who's saying what they're owed from God or looking down and despising their neighbor. And he said, we have to adopt this mindset so that we reckon it enough that we are one of the members of Christ. And desire nothing more than that Christ alone should be exalted. That's really what it means to deny yourself. Um, To look and just say, I don't need to be the first in the kingdom of God. I'm just thankful I'm in. I would rather be a doorkeeper 
in the palace of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. It's enough for me that I'm part. And it's enough for me that God is glorified in what I do. Jesus is saying that's your personal obligation to be like a child. And then the family obligation we have in the kingdom of God is to receive such a child. See how this is helping us to understand what it means to be last of all? To be like the child? And then what it means to be servant of all, to receive such a child. To be willing to receive in love the least in the kingdom of God. Not ask which one of us is greatest, but say, I'm willing to serve even the least. To receive them as Jesus receives them. And how does he receive this child? He embraces the child in his love. That's how we serve one another. Doing it in his name. Service is not always easy. It's not always easy for us to embrace one another in love. We're sinners. We have many failings. We fall short in many ways. That's why Jesus says, if you receive one such child in my name, you're doing what makes you great in the kingdom of God. And he ends by saying, you know, there's a wonderful blessing when you do this. It's hard to make yourself last of all. And it's hard to be the servant of all in the kingdom of God. But what is the blessing that Jesus promises if anyone receives such a child? in my name. He receives me. The blessing that comes from embracing one another in the household of God, receiving one another in love, even if we're the least of the people in the household, the blessing is we are embracing the Lord himself. Because the least one of us here is in Christ. The least one of us here who believes dwells in Christ and Christ dwells in that person. And so when you embrace that person in your love, you are embracing the Lord who dwells within them. Jesus says the blessing is when you receive such a one, you receive me. And he who receives me, Jesus says, receives the Father who sent me. Right? Because Jesus is not just one with all of us who believe. He's also one with his Father in heaven. And so he who receives the Christian receives Christ and receives the Father who sent him. And that's the greatest thing you can receive is the Father himself. Because as Jesus says, he is the greatest of all. You see how service, as God counts it, actually leads to the greatest of blessings. And Jesus wants his disciples, his 12 disciples, to understand this. Stop trying to figure out who's greatest and get busy serving one another. Get busy trying to get underneath one another. Right? Just as I'm sure no one on that road said, you know, I think I'll be the last of the 12. I think I'm 12 of 12. I don't think they were saying that. I think Jesus is saying you want to say that because even the 12th of 12 who truly has him, has the Father. Truly knows God and has him. May God work that kingdom mindset in our hearts. That we would be willing to consider ourselves last of all so that we might engage in that kingdom ministry of being the servant of all and in doing so receive both our brothers and sisters 
and Christ and the Father to his glory. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we do pray that you would send the Holy Spirit to fill us with the desire to be the least of all and to serve all. We know that this is a difficult calling, Lord, because each one of us in our sinful minds wants to be greater than others. And even in our service, sometimes we seek to outshine other people. Would you make us to be like the little child that Jesus pointed to, to not have ambition to be the greatest, but just be thankful that we are a member of your household and look around at the other members of your household and seek to serve them, knowing that in doing so we receive both your son and even you yourself. Help us in this, we pray by your spirit, and hear us for we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen.